Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for a wonderful day of worship that you've given us today as you do every day, Lord. But in particular on your day that you give us an opportunity to gather together and sing your praises and the truth of your word. That we are able to get together and hear your word proclaimed and to rejoice in the work of your son on the cross. And even tonight, Lord, as we come together for Bible study, asking the question, what do we believe as Baptists regarding Jesus Christ, the Son of God? So please bless our time tonight as we think deeply upon you. In Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so hopefully you've got your um, your little handout there. Uh, we've got one, two, three, four kind of little divisions there. I just went straight through the text. Some of it kind of reiterates a couple of times, but we'll um, approach that as we get there. <clears throat> so the first thing you'll notice here on God the Son... It says Christ is the eternal Son of God. In his incarnation as Jesus Christ, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So this word incarnation is very important. Here's what it means. God put on flesh. That's what it means. It means God put on flesh. So we would say that Jesus is God incarnate. He is God as a man. Now, what this doesn't deny is his preexistence. This doesn't mean that Jesus only came into existence whenever he was born of the Virgin Mary. Okay, There are some in the history of the church who believe that. It's, it's heresy. Jesus was not created. There are some today who would hold to a version of that, that Jesus is a created being. But he's not a created being. He is the eternally existent second member of the Trinity. Okay, so this doesn't deny his pre-existence. There's a pre-existent Christ before he took on flesh and then the Christ after he took on flesh. So what this means is that Jesus has two natures. He has a divine nature and a human nature. He's always had the divine nature. He's always been God. But then at a moment in history, he took on a human nature and is now the God-man, which he will be eternally into the future, forever the Son of God. So the divine nature we see in Scripture in multiple places. If you want to just write down the reference, Colossians 1.19, we see there that in Jesus it says, quote, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In that passage, Paul describes creation as being made through Jesus. It is by Jesus and through Jesus that all things were created. So the same way that we talk about God the Father, we talk about God the Son in his divine nature. But he also has a human nature. If you want to write down these two references, Matthew chapter 4, verse 2, Matthew 4, 2, Jesus is preparing to be tempted in the wilderness. He goes 40 days without food, without drink. He's fasting, and then it says he's hungry. Well, wait a minute, God can't get hungry. Well, Jesus has a fully human nature, and in his human nature, he is able to experience hunger and tiredness. The second reference is Luke chapter 2, verse 52, and it says here that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. This is after he wandered away from his family whenever he was younger, and they said, well, where's Jesus? And they go back, and he's in the temple, and he's teaching the Pharisees. And so he says, well, didn't you know I should be in my father's house? 
And it says that they were amazed at his wisdom, and he grew in wisdom and stature. So each nature is fully there, and his being divine doesn't take anything away from his humanity, and vice versa. So we can't say, well, Jesus wasn't fully human because he had a divine nature. And we can't say, well, he wasn't fully God because he had a human nature. There's been a lot of heresies over the history of the church that exalt one of those at the expense of the other. And they say, okay, well, Jesus was fully divine, but because he was fully divine, we don't believe that he was an actual person like a human person. Maybe he was just a projection. And the disciples thought they saw Jesus and they didn't really see him. Or they kind of twisted around the other way and said, well, Jesus was fully man, but he wasn't really fully God. Maybe just a wise prophet. We don't believe either of those. We believe that Jesus, there is one being, and he has two natures, fully God, fully man. And there's a phrase for this that I think my daughter might remember. Do you remember what it is? The hypostatic union. Very good. So hypostatic union. If you want to know why she knows that, there's a rapper that uh, does Christian rap, and it's theology. So that's one of his songs is the hypostatic union. So Jesus is fully God, 100% God, 100% man in one being. That's the hypostatic union. They both come together. This doesn't mean that he took half of the divine nature, half the human, and put it together. It's not 50-50. It's 100-100 together, 200% in, in one person. Okay, That's the hypostatic union. So this is what this article really is going to elaborate on. Christ is the eternal Son of God. He's existed for all time. But there is a moment, the incarnation, when Jesus took on flesh. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So now this next section here. Jesus perfectly revealed and did the will of God, taking upon himself human nature with its demands and necessities and identifying himself completely with mankind, yet without sin. He honored the divine law by his personal obedience And in his substitutionary death on the cross, he made provision for the redemption of men from sin. So this right here exemplifies why it's important that we affirm the humanity of Christ. The key word here, if you want to circle it or underline it or highlight it, whatever, is substitutionary. Substitutionary. Jesus lived and died as our substitute. If he did not have a human nature, he could not substitute for us. He had to be fully man for his substitution to take effect, or else he could not die on our behalf. Now, historically in the church, the church has framed sin with these two categories, sins of commission and sins of omission. Commission comes from the word commit. It's when I commit a sin. I do something bad. Okay? I do something that God does not like. That's a sin of commission. A sin of omission comes from the word omit. That's when I fail to do what I ought to do. So sin isn't just I did something bad. Sin is also I didn't do what God asked me to do. I didn't do something good. So those are two different categories of sin. And as we think about these in terms of what Christ has done for us, it's really important. 
When we think about the sinlessness of Jesus and his death in our place, we often think, okay, he didn't commit any sins. That's commission. And then he paid for our sins. That's excellent. But this in its own is not enough to save us. Think about this for just a moment. Adam and Eve had a period of time when they did not sin. If all we had in Christ was forgiveness of our sins, we would be in the exact same boat that they were in. But something else is still needed. There needs to be a period of obedience, which Adam and Eve did not do. Okay, So they were sinless for a time, then they sinned. And in the same way, if we had forgiveness of sin, we still have not been obedient to God. So Jesus does more than just dies in our place to forgive our sin. He also grants us his obedience. Okay? So when we say that Jesus died in our place, that's half the picture. He also lived in our place. The phrase for this is called Jesus' active obedience. And I want you to see this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. <clears throat> this is one of those ideas that for a long time as a Christian, I sang songs that reiterated this. Um, but I didn't really feel the weight of this. I, I don't remember when it was, but I remember that it was kind of a light bulb moment for me when I saw this. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. The title of this um, pericope in my Bible is Righteousness Through Faith in Christ. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Now listen to these words very carefully. I'm going to start back in verse 8 so that it's a complete sentence here. For his sake, that's talking about Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now here's verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Jesus doesn't just forgive me of my sins and then enable me to earn my own righteousness by the law. That's not how that works. Rather, through my faith in Christ... I have the righteousness of Christ. He has lived in my place and died in my place. So this is the active obedience of Jesus. He doesn't just die for us, but he lives for us also. Now, if there's active obedience, then there was also something called passive obedience. This refers to Christ's suffering, his payment that forgives us of our sin, which we're very accustomed to talking about, okay? So in this section, I want to highlight an addition uh, and an adjustment here. The 2000 Baptist Faith and Message rewords the 1963. Remember, the 25 didn't have this section. They just started with just the original article, and then they expanded that the following time in 63 and had sections for the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, the 2000 maintained that, 
But they made a couple of adjustments. So here's what the 1963 says. It says, taking upon himself the demands and necessities of human nature and identifying himself completely with mankind, yet without sin. Now, here's how the 2000 words this. Taking upon himself human nature with its demands and necessities. So they have flipped this, and it might sound insignificant. I'm going to read the difference again for you. Taking upon himself the demands and necessities of human nature versus taking upon himself human nature with its demands and necessities. What do you think is the significance behind this change? Any thoughts? Or is it irrelevant? That's right. That's exactly right. And this is going to come back up later also that they really wanted to clarify these things because of some issues that they were debating about at the time. So the first implies that Jesus could take part, certain demands and necessities of human nature without the entire thing. But the second clarifies he took upon himself human nature with all of its demands and necessities. Now, the 2000 also added the word substitutionary, which caught me off guard. I thought that they would have that in there prior, but they didn't. Believe it or not, there are many who might deny that Jesus actually pays for our sins. There's one view that in Jesus's death, he is making payment to Satan who owns us, and he is purchasing us from Satan to God. There's another view that would argue that Jesus' death wasn't payment for sin. Rather, God is just trying to show us how serious sin is by sending his son to die for sin. It's not payment. I just want you to know that sin is that serious. There's another view that believes that Jesus' death doesn't pay for sin. It's just a teaching moment. God is showing us how he wants us to live. But you'll notice in each of these, there's an element of truth in the first one in that before we are in Christ, we do belong to the God of this world, and so we are saved out of that. But there's an element of, of falsehood in these also, in the second one, the element of truth, uh, that God wants us to see how serious sin is. The third one, um, that God wants us to live that way. That there's elements of truth in all of these, but they all seek to deny the fact that there is wrath due us because of our sin. There's this almost this need to justify God and to say, well, I know that sounds intense, but God's not really like that. Well, it's important for us to know that that is actually the gospel. If there is no wrath against sin, what are we wasting our time going out and trying to tell people about this for? If it's just an example, okay, well, we can teach them another way, but we don't have to emphasize this. We have to emphasize that Jesus is a substitute. That I am in need of a substitute. That I am going to experience wrath one day unless the substitute dies in my place. That's vital. And so they didn't have that word substitutionary. They went back and added it, which I think obviously is, is good and right. Um, and I want us to see this in the book of 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. So 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. <clears throat> Let 
We're going to have a fancy theological word here. Some of these phrases and words we don't see in the scripture. Uh, Trinity, we don't see in the scripture. Uh, different examples of that. It's a word that we come up with, hypostatic union. We come up with that to help us understand what the scripture teaches. Okay. Now, here we have just a fancy word in the scriptures. And I'll explain it here in just a second. But this kind of makes the point. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Speaking of the love of God, it says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is when the wrath of God against sin is appeased, much like in the Old Testament sacrificial system when an animal was sacrificed and propitiation was made. God's wrath has been appeased in that moment. So this is what Jesus does for us. He appeases the wrath of God in our place. The next section here. uh, He was raised from the dead with a glorified body and appeared to his disciples as the person who was with them before his crucifixion. He ascended into heaven and is now exalted at the right hand of God, where he is the one mediator, fully God, fully man, in whose person is affected the reconciliation between God and man. We start here with this. He was raised from the dead. There was a school of thought for a little while, probably still out there in existence, but I don't think is prevalent anymore, that argued, is it really necessary for us to stand on Jesus's resurrection? Is it not just enough? And I think part of this was a movement to deny kind of the supernatural elements of scripture. You know, did someone really get eaten by a giant fish? Like, okay, was someone really thrown into the furnace? You know, did God really speak creation into existence? I think this probably goes with some of that. Was Jesus really raised from the dead? Do we really have to cling to this? And so similar to the word substitutionary, I look at this and I think the fact that we even have to clarify that, that that should be what we believe, but there are many who don't understand why it's necessary. If Jesus paid for our sins then it shouldn't matter whether he came back from the dead or not, right? So maybe that's kind of a negotiable, and we can, we can you know, agree to disagree on something like this. One helpful way of thinking of the resurrection is that it is God the Father's acceptance of Jesus' payment. How do I know that Jesus' payment was enough? He didn't stay dead. He didn't stay dead. The scriptures in multiple places, we'll give um, one reference here, but in multiple places, when it talks about our justification or our future hope, it doesn't always tie that to Jesus' death. Sometimes it references those things because of his resurrection. It secures and it reminds us that these things are actually going to happen. The example that I've got for us is Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Romans chapter 4. Verse 25, Romans is known for having a very robust explanation of the gospel and explaining some of these things, and we're going to see that here. So uh, we see a little bit about uh, the righteousness of Jesus being credited to our account, but then in Romans 4.25... It says that, uh, I'm going to back up in verse 24. It will be counted to us who believe in him who was raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up. 
for our trespasses, that is the the death of, of Christ, and raised for our justification. We see phrases like this all throughout the scripture where it's not just his death, but his resurrection that secures these things for us. Here, securing our justification. Okay, But more than that, Jesus' resurrection assures us of our resurrection. We're going to see this on Sunday morning um, several weeks from now as we go into uh, 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to come to the significance of the resurrection. And it gives us a hope with our resurrection. I know that I will be resurrected, not because of anything I've done, but because Christ has been resurrected. So if he hasn't been resurrected, then that is not good news for us. So we'll get to that on Sunday mornings. I won't spend a lot of time on that here, but I do want to add one further um, clarification here. At the bottom of this section here, it says, in whose person is effected the reconciliation between God and man. This, again, just reinforces this idea that there is a gulf between us and our creator. God, us. And this gulf has to be bridged by someone. It has to be Christ who is both fully God and fully man, which you see reiterated here. One mediator, fully God, fully man. I I can't stress enough how important these things are, but people seem to, over the course of history, be willing to sacrifice these truths. So um, I do need to go ahead and add, just so that uh, for transparency here, the 2000 changed the 1963. The 1963 said, partaking of the nature of God, and of man to just fully God, fully man. Again, just kind of clarifying that he didn't just take some aspects of it, but Jesus really is 100% God, 100% man without sacrificing either of those. So this last section here says, he will return in power and glory to judge the world and to consummate his redemptive mission. He now dwells in all believers as the living and ever-present Lord. So this is called the second coming of Christ. He came once, he will come again. We're going to cover this in more detail when we get to Article 10. So I'm not going to go into a ton of detail here outside of just what we see. This second coming is going to involve two acts. Judgment of of the wicked and the glorification of believers. So there will be some who inherit eternal life, and then there will be some who inherit eternal destruction. The two destinations being heaven and hell. So those are the two things that are going to take place at his return. And the final phrase here is very, very, very Baptist. He now dwells in all believers as the living and ever-present Lord. This is where we get our phrase, ask Jesus into your heart. It is appropriate to speak of Jesus as living inside of us. He is present within us. And then we also have this phrase, very Baptist, to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. These, this just exemplifies this and what we believe here. Okay? So all of this, I, I want you to, if I'm going to drive point a home, and that's going to kind of fuel our application, all of this drives home something that's just vital for us to affirm. Jesus is 100% God. He is 100% man. There is no part of him that is not God, and there's no part of him that is not 
man, if we sacrifice either of those, it creates a lot of trouble for us and usually leads us into heresy. And then those groups end up dying off. So I want to give you three ways. It's important. I've made that case. I want to give you three ways now that his divinity and his humanity affect my life right here, right now. What does this matter to us? Three things. Number one, Jesus understands you. Jesus understands you. The scripture says that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. That phrase, in every way as we are, is very important for us. Okay? Did he ever sin? No, he did not. But he was tempted in every way. And sometimes it's argued that, well, Jesus can't know how hard temptation is because he's God. He wouldn't have sinned. He's never sinned. He couldn't have possibly sinned. So he doesn't really understand. But that doesn't logically follow. I want you to imagine the same statement, but this time applied to something like weightlifting. Obviously, looking at me, you know I can lift a lot of weight. It's okay to laugh. All right? Yes. All right? I can only lift so much weight, and it's not a lot. If I try to lift too much... Let's just say I'm trying to lift 200 pounds. I cannot feel the weight of 200 pounds. I I can't feel that much weight because I cannot lift that much weight. I can only feel the tension of what I am able to bear. However, if someone else stronger than me who can lift 200 pounds comes in and picks up that weight, they feel more of that weight than I do. In my weakness. Think about temptation. The hardest temptation, the the time that you feel the highest weight of temptation is when it is hitting you over and over and over again. Our weakest moments, we just give in immediately. And you don't feel the weight of that temptation. If I'm tempted and I instantly sin, I don't really feel a lot of weight from that. There wasn't a lot of tension. But the longer I go and try to fight off this temptation, the harder it is and the more it hurts. The fact that Jesus is able to eternally endure that temptation without giving in tells me that he understands the weight of temptation more than I do. I'm not strong enough. I give in too easily. So I can't, I I don't understand that. Jesus actually can understand it better than I can, even though he never sinned. So what this means is that we can trust Jesus and go to Jesus with our struggles, knowing that he understands. He's not sitting in heaven thinking, well, you're just a screw up. You're just not any good. He understands and he goes to the father on our behalf, pleading our case. Jesus understands you. And that's only because he was tempted in every way as we are. Number two, Jesus is an example for you. Jesus is an example for you. Here I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, 18 through 25. This chapter, uh, this second half of the chapter here is actually on submitting to authorities, submitting to every human institution. I believe we've looked at this maybe together before. 
Um, and then in verse 18, he's speaking to servants, slaves, and tells them to be subject to their masters. And he continues on, and then he kind of gives the defense for this, the justification. So I'm not going to read the whole section here, but First Peter chapter 2, I'm going to um, start in verse 20. First Peter chapter 2. He says, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see here that the Son of God who committed no sin, he suffered unjustly, he endured, and he did that, yes, to forgive us, yes, to live in our place, but also to be our example, to show us that a man can do these things. And you may think, well, yeah, but Jesus is also fully God, and we are not fully God. But I want you to consider this. We as Christians have a measure of divinity living within us. God dwells in you as a believer. And he empowers us to do everything that God calls us to do such that we can never say, Oh, well, God, I just couldn't do it. You actually could do it in God's power. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect this side of heaven. What it does mean is that Jesus is our example and that we ought to follow. So Jesus understands you. Jesus is an example for you. Here's the third one. Jesus is committed to you. Jesus is committed to you. Now, this does not mean that you are at the center of Jesus' universe. Sometimes we have this idea that, Oh, well, just God just cares about me more than anything. What the, you know, look at the great love of God that I would occupy such a space in his mind. God is at the center of his own universe, not us. However, what this does mean is that if God was willing to die for you, it's difficult to imagine what he would not be willing to do for you. Romans chapter 8 Verses 31 through 32 make this point, and this will be our last reference today. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. This is a wonderful truth. Romans 8, 31 through 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God did not spare his own son for you. If that is not an encouragement for you this afternoon, maybe there's some things that, that you're just like, man, life is just heavy. I know Jesus is an example. I know he understands me. I, I am just, I'm just at my wit's end. I just don't know if I can bear it. He gave his son for you. He will lift you up. He will sustain you in the midst of your trial. I'm going to pray for us and then I'll open up for a time of uh, Q&A. Lord God, we thank you for this magnificent truth that the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, he took on flesh, was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He became the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, so that he might live a perfect life in our place, fulfilling your law perfectly to the T, that he might die in our place, bearing the weight of our condemnation and guilt, the weight of your wrath against all sin in our place on the tree. He suffered, he died, he was buried, and as he promised, Lord, you rose him on the third day. He received a new body, which we will one day receive. He ascended to heaven and is now seated where you are at, at your right hand. He is our mediator, speaking to you on our behalf, enabling us to come to you right now as we're doing. Lord, thank you for such a wonderful gift that you would give us your son. Would you equip us and empower us and embolden us to come to you through him, to trust you because of him. Lord, to cry out to you in our times of need, knowing that you were committed to us because of what you have given for us, namely your son. Lord, we want to honor and please you. We want to follow the example you have given to us. So we ask that you would just magnify Jesus Christ in our minds all throughout the day. That we might be ever mindful of what a friend, what a gift we have in Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We pray all these things in his wonderful name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.